Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Good morning. Let me uh, invite you to find your seats or start finding them if you got up and moved around a lot. Devin, I love seeing your son responding in worship, (laughs) dancing over there. Uh, Good morning, church. Thanks. Um, For those of you who don't know me, um, there's some newer faces. My name's Joe. I'm the youth pastor here at Sawyer. And and once in a while, they they let me come up here and, and... take on the weighty task of preaching God's word. And so uh, I'm encouraged. There is a feast of truth for us prepared by our God this morning in his word. And so let me encourage you at the outset to open your ears and your hearts and your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some in the pew. I would encourage you to have one open. There are some things that are just easier to see in a book than in a, on a screen. Not that screens are bad. It's great that we can have them with us all the time, uh, but I think it would be a benefit to have the word open uh, in front of you. So uh, before we dive into Matthew chapter 13, uh, let's get caught up to speed, a little review of what's been happening in the book of Matthew so far. Uh, Till now, Jesus has been presented in a number of different ways as the the promised Messiah or the promised King of the Jews. So this this, um, was done first by his authoritative teaching. When when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed. They they recognized he was teaching like like as if he was God. He had some authority. And, And then later, his authority is demonstrated following the sermon. He just does miracle after miracle after miracle, healing, uh, healing people who were blind from birth, casting out demons, stilling storms. And so this, this guy had some authority. But although he had demonstrated his authority, it, it seems pretty consistent throughout that there remained a need for Jesus to reframe people's expectations of him. Um, let me explain what I mean. They expected a leader, probably like Moses or Joshua or David, someone who would lead them spiritually, but also in military might. But Jesus wasn't rallying any militias. Uh, he, he wasn't putting it to the man so far. So, so how Jesus compared to people's expectations of what he was supposed to be like made him pretty polarizing. There, there were some pretty intense opinions about Jesus, causing some to follow him, but many to oppose him. And it was at this point of increasing polarization in his ministry that Jesus started teaching in parables. Last week was our first week in chapter 13. And so parables are, are kind of like symbolic short stories. I guess they can sometimes be longer. Uh, and, and while parables can be confusing sometimes, uh, think about this. Don't, they have some value. Because don't stories teach? Don't Don't stories educate us and form us in ways that lecture and dialogue sometimes fail to do? So in that spirit, let me me tell you a story of sorts or an illustration to to help illustrate the point of of Jesus' parables this morning. This will hit for some of you, and it'll totally miss for others, okay? How many of you have ever watched any kind of show on HGTV? Okay, 
All right. So HGTV is like this home renovation channel. And, and we don't watch it a ton in our house. We usually watch it when I go to my mom's. Um, but when we do, I've noticed that whatever the show, it usually follows a somewhat similar format. Okay. So you can like nod your heads if I'm on point or, or not. One of the show hosts usually... Uh, it's usually a visionary of, you know, there's more than one host, but one of them's the visionary and they look at the house and they talk with the homeowners and, and they want to hear what kind of changes do they want to have done to the house. And, and, then, and then what they do is they create like this digital model, this vision of what the end product is going to look like. So far, so good? I think that's usually what happens. Um, and, and so at this point, the homeowners are either uh, cautiously optimistic, like, I don't know if you can do that, or they are just beaming with excitement. Okay, that, those are the, That's the range of, of reactions. So then the homeowners will leave the house and the work will begin and the show starts. Now, periodically over the next couple of weeks, months, the homeowners will stop and check in on the work. And, and sometimes they're, they're not catching the vision yet. Um, usually demolition is in process, or, or there's always, always some unforeseen obstacle, right? Or unforeseen expense. Oh, no, not that. I, we can't replace the foundation. So there's this big expense, and, and that brings some level of discouragement to the homeowners because they're just not seeing the progress towards that vision, okay? Somehow, in the end, though, everything works out. The house looks great, and the time, money, and effort were worth it, just like the show host had said, just how they had envisioned. Okay, am I, am I right? Does that sound like most HDTV shows? I mean, there's a few different ones I know, like, okay. Yeah? Tracking with me? Okay, good. So think with me a little bit longer. I'll, I'll leave the HDTV soon. Um, there's something interesting about HDTV because the show host has two audiences in mind don't they? The first audience that they're thinking about is the homeowner. They're casting vision, and they're assuring the homeowner that the heart, there is progress. It's hard to see, but there's progress happening here, okay? The second, uh, well, I guess they're doing that. Why? They want to encourage them. They want to gain their trust. They want to save the homeowners from stress, but then the second audience in mind is us, the viewers, Right? The host knows that they're being filmed and that we're going to be watching them. This second audience that they have in mind, they want us to watch their show. Right? There's some money involved, but hopefully you know, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They also want to cast vision for us. You know, your house, you could work on your house. I mean, how many of us watch HGTV because we want to like, have ideas for our own homes? Right? That's why we do it. And so the second audience, the show host is trying to perhaps inspire them toward transforming their own house and maybe calling them in to do it, okay? Um, because I know there's money involved in HGTV. But, but let's leave it there now and, and consider this. In some ways, what Jesus is doing today is, in the parables today, is similarly painting a picture, a vision of, of the kingdom as it will be one day when it fully arrives. And he also gives that picture to two separate audiences, Right? The, the first audience that he gives it to uh, is, is the, the crowds, and, and he wants them to catch a glimpse of this kingdom. It's, it's coming, and, and so move towards it. Join me. Join the kingdom. And then to the second audience, his disciples, he's inviting them to trust him, even though uh, they're not seeing the progress. Right? There's, there's weeds. We're going to get to it and read it in just a moment. But, but there's some similarities here with what Jesus is doing and what HGTV show hosts are doing. Okay. But at this point, 
let's move on. Uh, I want to try to summarize the main point. I kind of wrestled with how, how to best do it, and, and I'll explain that maybe throughout. But let, I, I want you to imagine the main point as if Jesus were saying it in one succinct sentence, and that sentence is this. My Father's kingdom is growing. My Father's kingdom is growing. You will see. Trust when I say this and turn to me. Okay, so I know there's some rhyme in there, but I think it can help the memory. My Father's kingdom is growing. You will see. Trust when I say this and turn to me. Okay, so if you're like me, I'm going to project the, the structure. Uh, some, some of us like to see the structure, hear the structure, the flow of thought. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to project that here. Um, ver, chap, uh, I guess I broke it up into four sections. And so the first seven verses, we're going to read about the parable of weeds in the kingdom, followed by two more parables about growth in the kingdom. And then there's a little intermission where Jesus, or Matthew rather, explains why Jesus used parables with the crowds. And then we circle back to an explanation of the weeds and the end of the age. So if you don't have time to write that down now, it, it'll be projected throughout, so, so never fear. But let me, at this point, I want to invite, I asked John Hoekstra if he would come and read our text for us this morning. And so as he makes his way on up, let me invite those of you who are able to stand. Uh, we do this in honor and recognition of God's word as being God's word. So I think, yeah. Matthew 13, 24 to 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will let reapers gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before him, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we stand. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to want to understand. God, this is your word. Um, Help us reckon with the weightiness of it. Help us to hear from you this morning. Soften our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So again, let me admonish you to open those Bibles or keep them open because sometimes we'll have things projected, other times we won't, or maybe you'll be curious about a a connection made. So let's get started with our our first parable that John just read for us, the the parable of weeds in the kingdom. Now, the first of our parables this morning starts off very similarly to Jesus's previous parable that we read about last week. Again, he is speaking to the crowds, and again, he is telling them about a man with a field who is planting seed. Uh, So he He's chosen some good seeds that we, we read about this time, and he plants it all over his field. And, and so far in our little parable plot, things seem to be off to a good start. Okay, but it doesn't take long to reach a tension point in the narrative. Just the, the second verse, we read that this man has an enemy. This man has an enemy who has taken advantage of an opportunity to ruin his crop. Jesus later identified that enemy as the devil, which is, an, is a name that we kind of, we understand it as a name. It's not just a name. It's a word that means traitor, treacherous, diabolical, saboteur. Uh, and, and so those are fitting descriptions for, for this enemy because this devil sneaks into the field and, and sows weeds among the wheat that the man had sown. And, and his treachery seemingly at first, goes unnoticed, right? But when the wheat started to grow, the text says, then the weeds appeared. We, we, they noticed that the weeds, once it started growing, that is, when the wheat began to grow and, and start forming buds and putting out grain, and the weeds didn't, well, well, the deception began to appear as well. They realized, well, something horrible has happened. Action needs to be taken. Um... So my, my wife is a, a gardener, and, and she would tell you that weeds are one of the constant realities. Any other gardeners in here? Like, you can have a small garden. That still counts, okay? Okay, just a few. So, so weeds are a constant reality for gardeners, and that, that my wife, and me too, should oppose in order to bring forth a good garden. Now, simply said, weeds, they're just always present. And what do we do with them? We pull them, right? Um, and, and, when, and when more sprout up, we pull those too. And, and this seems to be the worker's idea. The angels have the same kind of uh, thought. The, um, Master, should, should we go and gather up the weeds? 
pull them out. But he says, no. Instead, they should wait till the end of the growing cycle, the harvest, and then we'll deal with it. Which for me, an inexperienced gardener, an inexperienced farmer of wheat, is a little bit confusing. Because, you know, the reason we pull weeds is because they, they steal sunlight, they steal water and nutrients in the soil. Doesn't it seem like the wheat would grow better if the weeds were not there? Especially if he's got plenty of eager workers who want to go do it for him. Go, go for it, is my thought. But the explanation that the man gives demonstrates his wisdom in patiently waiting. He said that if you were to go and pull up the weeds now, you might accidentally pull out the wheat with it. Now, why is that? Okay, There's a couple explanations that are possible. Jesus doesn't really explain what, which one's correct. But, but one explanation could be that the roots are kind of interconnected. So you pull one out, you get maybe two or three, a clump. It could be, uh, and many scholars would say, you know, this weed was, sometimes have you ever heard, called it the, the wheat and the tares? A tear is like a type of weed, and usually darnel is the name of the, the, the weed that most people think was planted here. And, and the thing with darnel is that it looks identical to wheat until, it start, until the wheat starts to turn brown, okay? Uh, and so, so whichever reason it is, um, it, there's, there's, a, there's a potential threat. You know, if we, if we pull the weeds too early, we're going to lose some of the wheat, and we're not going to do that. So, so he says, let's wait. Because if we wait, you can more confidently distinguish between the wheat and the weeds. You're going to know which is which. And, 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 they're, and it's okay. They're all coming up anyway. So we're going to harvest it. We're going to gather the wheat and burn the weeds. Following? But Jesus isn't talking about, I mean, this, these are parables. Jesus isn't talking about a farmer. Um, reading these parables is admittedly pretty tough, I think. But I think fortunately for us with this parable, Jesus gives an explanation later on that we've, we've already read. And so we have the benefit of knowing what, what he's really talking about. It, this parable is about not a field, but it's about the world. It's not the church. It's the world that God has made and about those who follow him. It's called the good seed. And, and those who are planted by the devil, the evil ones, the sons of the evil one, it's the, the weeds. Um, it's about... Um, them growing alongside one another, and it's about the future time when God will execute justice and judgment on evil and gather his people into his kingdom. But if you're like me, there, there are some questions that still persist. You know, that, that explanation doesn't fully satisfy all my curiosity. So I've got a couple questions. First, why is it that Jesus mentions this story twice and, and not the other two? He doesn't explain the other two. So why is he why is he telling this story twice? And my second question is, well, what kind of change does Jesus want to produce in the people listening? What kind of transformation does he want to see? He's telling this story. Why? So those are the questions I have. Let's start with the first one. Why, why did he mention it twice? I think there's probably a couple explanations. A significant one that we, we picked up on in, in Sunday school is that this is being spoken to two different groups of people. The first time it's being spoken to who? It's the crowds. And the reason we get a second explanation is because the disciples come and ask for one. So, so that's interesting. The two audiences, right? HGTV style. Um, and, and then secondly, what kind of transformation is Jesus seeking? And I think the answer in part is it depends on who you are. 
The transformation that he wants, it, it depends on which audience you are. Are you the homeowner or the viewer? Are you the disciple or the crowd? So in the first telling of this parable, Jesus is talking to the crowds, which were those who had not yet made up their mind about Jesus. Is he the promised king or not? And it might have included some of the, the weeds too. Okay? And, and interestingly, when Jesus tells the parable the first time to the crowds, he emphasizes the master's patient waiting. Right? We're not going to pull up the weeds yet. That's what's emphasized in the first one. Uh, he, he didn't want to destroy his people. So why emphasize God's patience when speaking to the crowds of people who hadn't made up their mind? Well, I think 2 Peter chapter 3 gives us a pretty interesting synopsis. Peter was here. He learned, he heard this parable firsthand, and, and he kind of says it this way. Um, God, this is chapter 3, I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing, but God is patient towards us because he wants all to reach repentance. God is patient. He's not, he's not dealing with evil yet because he wishes that all would reach repentance. Do you hear that in the, in the text? He's emphasizing the master's patience because he wants people to repent. Jesus wants those in the crowd who are not yet following him to recognize that the present moment is in fact the right time to come to him. It's not too late for them yet. Uh, and so even if, if they don't see an incredible kingdom right now, it will be obvious someday that the kingdom is here and it will be incredible, but it will be too late then. That will be the harvest. And so I think what Jesus is doing in this first telling of the parable is encouraging the crowds to see that he is the king, he, he is on the scene, and he invites them to hear the invitation. And I think that extends to some of us here if we're on the fence about Jesus. Hear this parable as an invitation. The harvest is coming. It's not here yet. So come to him. Okay. So Jesus moves on pretty quickly from that. He tells another parable without any explanation yet. Jesus continues to fire off these two short parables to the crowds. So let's take them in turn and make a few observations. Let me read verses 31 and 32. Jesus put another parable before the crowd, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Okay, so in this first parable, Jesus sticks with his favorite illustration so far, seeds, right? He hasn't strayed from seeds yet. Uh, and, and while there's a lot of detail in these two verses, uh, if we want to understand the main point Jesus was making, we should try to keep from getting lost in the details and notice what he spends the most time talking about. So parables, sometimes we want to like say, oh, this equals that and that equals this. And, and that's healthy to some point, but we can really get lost in the details and end up getting the wrong main point. Parables are supposed to teach one thing. So let's focus on what he spends the most time emphasizing here. What does he emphasize in this parable? Um, let me see how I worded it here. Um, right? it, it, it's the seed, and it's the size. Right? In, in previous parables, um, it's, it was the soil that the seed was planted in. In, in the weeds, it was the seed was a good seed, not a bad seed. But it's not, that, it's not that here. 
In this parable, it's not the presence of weeds. It's the size of the seed, which is interesting. Before the seed has been planted, let me, you know, this is not a mustard seed, and I'm certainly not the first person to, to think of showing you one of these. Um, I've got baby's breath seeds, which might be smaller than a mustard seed. Um, but let me, let me just try something here. See if I can get one on my... I took these without asking my wife. Um, okay, let's see if I can do this. Okay, let's see if it stays there. Can anyone see this? Do you believe me that I have a seed on my finger? Some of you might be close enough to see it. Okay, I just want you to get a visual. He, he compares it to a seed that's kind of small like this. Okay, well, mustard isn't the tiniest seed ever in the history of seeds. That's not what Jesus is trying to say. This was a, a, a famous or popular illustration that Jewish rabbis used in Jesus's day to illustrate the smallness of something. And small it is. And here's, this is something interesting, okay? In an age where contact lenses and glasses did not exist, how many of you would have been able to see that? Anyone? I mean, maybe a couple? The youngest eyes among us? Okay, it, it's very likely that many would have not seen this at all. It would have been hiding in plain sight. It was there, but you couldn't see it. Sound like the weeds and the wheat? But the smallness of the seed is only half the parable, Okay, the mustard seed, that tiny little seed placed in a field, would eventually become gigantic, I mean, by comparison. right? So like 15 to 20 feet tall and wide when it had reached maturity. And, and he says this is a garden plant, but he talks about it being planted in a field. So if you're like walking through wheat, and all of a sudden there's this 20-foot tall mustard tree, I mean, it's, it's not invisible anymore, is it? It's impossible to miss. It's the biggest thing in the landscape, on the horizon. And so the small seed had become a mighty tree. Okay, so just track with the illustration that Jesus is using here. Um, I'll just make a couple other comments. Jesus is using language from the prophets here as well. So when he talked about birds finding refuge in the branches, what are we to make of that? Well, in, in Daniel chapter 4, maybe chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and, and, and it's revealed to him that that tree in his dream was actually an image of his kingdom. It had gotten to be so large and mighty that these birds, identified as other nations, would come and find protection in this tree. And so what Jesus is doing, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's tree gets cut down. So that's not, Jesus isn't going there. But he's making an illustration of how this kingdom will be mighty. Nations are going to come and flock to it. It will be the greatest among nations or the greatest of kingdoms. So the, the, the thing is, it, it was small and hard to see, but soon it will be the mightiest. Tracking? So there's a contrast here that we want to note. Okay, Jesus moves on to the next parable, leaven. Uh, it, is a, it starts with a woman who takes leaven, which was probably like an old piece of bread, but we use yeast uh, as a, a leavening agent. It's something that you put in bread. If you're not, how many of you are bakers? How many of you have never tried to bake bread in your life? Okay, be brave, okay? So when you, I tried one time, and I, I don't do it anymore. Um, but there is something really, really cool that happens here. So a, an ingredient that is, um, a, a leaven-type ingredient is something that you, you, you kind of mix into some dough, and, and, and what happens is after you mix it in, you let the dough sit, and it starts to, to lighten and, and kind of fluff up a little bit and rise. 
If you ever hear him talking about let it rise, that, that's what leaven does. It is a, a lightning and softening ingredient. And what happens is it affects the entire, it's alive, right? It's, an, it's a living thing. And it, it, it grows until it fills the whole lump of dough. And the lump of dough here is like pretty big. They say it's like enough to feed 150 people, those three measures. It's like 60 pounds of dough. That's a lot of dough. Um, and when we talk about leaven it, outside of the context of baking, like, oh, that's leaven, you know, like that, that's something that we use to describe how pervasive something can be. You know, bad company ruins good morals. And, and so it just, it, it spreads until it affects every part of your life. So um, hopefully that, that helps illustrate what, what leaven is. I want to notice a couple of things before we move on, though. Jesus describes this woman as doing something with the leaven. She hides it in the dough. Now, there are Greek words that Matthew could have used to describe what Jesus or uh, what the woman did with the leaven. He, there's words for put, there's words for mix, there's words for knead, like when you knead dough. Uh, but he didn't use any of those words. He used the word hide, which is a curious word. Um, and I think that the strand Jesus is trying to pull on, the theme, is, is not that this woman is hiding it because she doesn't want people to see the kingdom. She's She's hiding the leaven in the bread, um, or I think the strand that he's pulling on is that um, the kingdom, this, this leaven, it's present. It's here in the dough, and, and you don't really notice it at first. But if you've ever watched bread rise, how many of you have ever seen bread right after you put the leaven in and then after? Has anyone seen that? It, it, isn't it like kind of weird? It, like, it rises, and you notice it eventually. Once it, once it affects the whole lump of bread, it's, it's big. Uh, and, and so I think it's that contrast again. You can't ignore the presence of leaven after it's fully risen. So finally, we're going we're gonna to move on from this in a, in a minute. But bear in mind, Jesus is still addressing who at this point? It's the, the crowds. I mean, the, the disciples are present, but he's mostly addressing the crowds. And what's he doing? Well, maybe some in the crowd shared the same sentiments as John the Baptist, who back in chapter 10, uh, he, um, he sent his disciples to Jesus and he, he had some doubts. He said, Jesus, are you the guy? I, I mean, I thought you were, but are you the guy or should we wait for someone else? Look for someone else. And the reason he asked that is because he was not seeing judgment on evil like the Messiah was supposed to do, right? And so I wonder if some in the crowd felt kind of like that. Where was the judgment on the weeds, on the evil? Are you the one, Jesus, or should we look for another? There was, and I think is still today, this idea that if God is good and if he's present, then he should have cut evil off already. There shouldn't be evil here if God's good, if he's loving. In fact, I think that's one reason why many people, perhaps even some here, still resist Jesus today. And if that's you, or if that's what the people in the crowd were thinking, they should hear these three parables as a call to believe that the kingdom is in fact here, and it is growing, and that he, Jesus, is the king they've been looking for. They need to hear Jesus' invitation to join the kingdom while there's still time, and that invitation is for us too. Now, we get to the, the final, or not the final, the, 
the next section, uh, which is a little bit of an intermission, the point of the parables. So Jesus has just finished speaking the parables to the crowds. From the rest of the chapter, he's not going to talk to the crowds anymore. It's kind of a, a shift in his, in his ministry, in his message. He's now going to be talking mostly to the disciples. All of the parables next week are to the disciples. So he's finished speaking to the crowds. And this is kind of like an underlining statement, Jesus, uh, about why he spoke to the crowds in parables. So let's, um, let me read verses 34 and 35. I don't think, I think I told Aiden only to project 35. So all of these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So, few observations about this, this um, intermission, this, this prophecy. This prophecy actually, curiously, doesn't come from a book of a prophet. It actually comes from the book of Psalms. If you have like little footnotes in your Bible, you can follow it to Psalm 78, verse 2. And, and it's actually written by a man named Asaph, and he is speaking the history of Israel. That's what he does in Psalm 78 in order to teach but he wasn't talking about the future Messiah. So some of us, I'll spend like a brief second talking about this. Some of us get hung up on that, right? Like this guy isn't a prophet. He's a psalmist. So, and he's not talking about Jesus, the Messiah. So how can this, how can Jesus fulfill this so-called prophecy? So if that's something that gets you um, sort of hung up or, or maybe you're just interested in it, let me, let me just comment. Even though the psalmist, strictly speaking, is not a prophet, we need to understand how Matthew understood the Old Testament. Okay, Matthew read his Old Testament, his, his Bible, um, really as seeing the whole thing as a prophetic pointing to Jesus. Every, Jesus was the fulfillment of every part of the Bible. He saw the law fulfilled in Jesus. He saw the prophets fulfilled in Jesus. He saw Israel as, as the, Jesus as like the, the, the true Israel, the future or the, the Israel that kept the law, Right? So G Matthew sees Jesus as the embodiment of all of the Old Testament, um, or that it was all pointing to him, rather. And so even the Psalms point to Jesus. Um, hopefully I didn't make that less clear. <laughs> um, but he sees the whole thing as pointing to Jesus. And so in that sense, this psalmist becomes a prophet of sorts. Okay, second observation. Whenever we uh, uh, encounter an Old Testament quote by a New Testament author— there are, there are rules that we have to follow if we really want to get uh, the point. And the, the main rule is this, that we must go back and we must read that quote in its original place, right? So we have to read Psalm 78 to know what Jesus and, and Matthew are doing here by quoting it. Um, so, so let's do that because if we do, something really interesting is going to come to the surface, Okay, the, the psalmist parable we'll find is simply, it, it's not a parable like what Jesus has been telling. It's a story about Israel and how Israel was stubborn and God was merciful. He showed them signs. He kept loving them. He was faithful to them. And then they were wicked and, and faithless again. And so it's this back and forth history of Israel. That's what the parable is of Psalm 78. So let's, let's read it. Um, I think, Aiden, do we have it projected? You're the man. So I'm only going to read the first eight verses, and let's see if we can also um, see what the author, the psalmist's reason was for telling the parable, okay? 
So that's your assignment. Why is he writing or why is he telling the story of Israel? We'll see if we can get it. Psalm 78, verse 1, a, a masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So let's end our, our reading there. Did you catch the purpose? Why, why is the psalmist writing the story of Israel? He's going to recite the history of Israel so that the next generation might know and not forget God's commands. He's reciting it that they may hope in God, that they may not be like their stubborn ancestors. So, so track with me. Asaph is telling a story, a history, not to hide the truth from a generation of Israelites, but to teach the generation of Israelites to turn to God. So, Listen here, Jesus is doing the same thing in these parables, okay? There, there are some confusing uh, things, some confusing elements in the parables, but Jesus is telling stories to the crowds in order to reveal that he is the Messiah and that they should turn to him and not be stubborn like their ancestors. This is an invitation to the crowd. He's revealing the things that have been hidden so that they would not be like their ancestors, it's a very interesting prophetic quote in Matthew 13. Um, let me find my place again. Which leads me to a final um, third observation. When, when Matthew quotes Psalm 78, he does some interesting things. So, so read with me verse 35. He, he says, uh, or he changes, this is what Psalm 78 says. I will utter dark sayings from of old. That's what the psalmist said. Matthew changes the wording a little bit. He says, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So, so Matthew is, is translating this Old Testament passage. I don't think it's unfaithful. I think he's translating this Old Testament passage in such a way that it fits perfectly with what he is trying to say in these three parables. Basically, that there are things hiding in plain sight. There are things among you that you can't see like his kingdom. And so Jesus is speaking in stories and parables so that some in the crowds might see it before it's too late. These parables are a mercy. And so I really think it's important uh, to see Jesus's heart in all this. Okay, There may be a temptation in our lives when we see evil to think that Jesus doesn't really care about the crowds. He's hiding the truth in a parable because he doesn't want the crowds. And that is not the truth. 
Jesus is speaking the parables because he wants them to see the truth. He wants them to see the kingdom, and he wants them to see him as the king and to bow to him today before they have to bow to him at the end of the age. So if you are not following Christ and you're here, you're on the fence, I implore you to reframe any negative assumptions you may have of God and see in these parables Jesus' pursuit of you. He wants you to know the truth. He is attempting to break through the walls of resistance that you may have so that you would come to him. He's calling you. And that's the last thing that Jesus says in parables to the crowds. And now he kind of turns. And the text comes full circle. We're back in the weeds, so to speak. Um, But some things have changed this time around. Notice that the venue has changed. He's not on the boat speaking to the crowds on the shore anymore. Now he's in the house, um, and, he's, and he's not with the crowds. He's with his disciples. It's more private. And now we also encounter some dialogue, some interaction back and forth because the disciples ask for an explanation. And Jesus' explanation to, uh, of the parable seems to be catered to his disciples this time around as well. So remember, when speaking to the crowds, Jesus' emphasis in in the weeds parable was on the farmer's patience, on on his waiting to pull out the weeds. But here, in the second telling of the the weeds, that period of waiting is entirely absent. There, There is no explanation of the conversation he had with the angels. It's gone. Okay? Um... Jesus jumps from explaining the symbols, this is that, this is that, and he goes right to an explanation of the harvest, the end of the age. The whole conversation's gone. It's interesting. Why? So it seems that for the disciples, the audience this time around, Jesus is wanting to emphasize that there will be a day, the end of the age, when he will gather the weeds and execute justice. There will be a day when he will send his angels to gather, not just weeds, but this time he says, every cause of sin and all lawbreakers, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. See, Jesus was comforting his disciples by assuring them that the sower had not fallen asleep at the wheel. God is not, it's not like he can't see the evil, but he has a purpose for waiting. He's chosen to wait for a reason but he will execute justice one day according to his goodness. So this is a call for the disciples to trust the sower, to trust Jesus. And I think this truth can give us great comfort as believers, and it can restore confidence in God for us. Continuing on, note that Jesus, again, um, uses language from the prophets. So fiery furnace, that probably makes us think of Daniel. The son of man makes us think of Daniel. Um, He he mentions that um, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's Daniel chapter 12 as well. Um, And and so I think here, using this prophetic language, Jesus is actually urging his disciples to to be forward-looking. Don't get caught up in the short-sighted what you can see here and now. Um, Jesus is is looking beyond that. He was urging them to to even look, I think, beyond the judgment, right? There's going to be judgment of evil, but but look beyond that. The last two sentences are really, really important. Because after the judgment, there is a time coming when the righteous will shine, 
right? The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. No sin, no lawlessness, just basking in the presence of the father in his kingdom in righteousness, in righteousness. Now let's hit pause for a moment with the word righteous. Now I don't know how that word sits for you. I think it's understood pretty differently by different people. Some understand the word righteous as like, ah, oh, basically a good person, right? That's how we assess people. Oh, they're a good, good guy. She's, she's a nice woman, right? And then there's also a different explanation for, for righteousness. Others think that blamelessness is a fitting definition for righteous, morally um, perfect, without fault. But it's most important to know what Jesus meant by the term. So what does Jesus mean by righteousness? Well, think back to the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Uh, there, Jesus talks about righteousness quite a bit. There was a type of righteousness in, in Matthew chapter 5 that the Pharisees had, these leaders of these religious leaders. And, and the righteousness that, righteousness that they had was not good enough for entrance into the kingdom. Their rule-following, performance-based righteousness is not the kind of righteousness that will shine in the kingdom of the Father. Okay? Later in chapter 5, Jesus tells the crowds that are listening that they have to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. Wow. That means they need to be wholly righteous in action and heart, meaning what they do must be right and their reasons for doing it, which is a really, really high standard. I mean, who can, who can even attain such a standard? Well, only Jesus and those who will humble themselves, recognize their sin, and go to him and go to him in faith to receive his righteousness as a gift, right? Jesus' righteousness is the only kind that's going to shine in the kingdom of the Father. And so we need to get that righteousness. And, and to do that, we have to confess our sins and put our faith in Jesus. So in, in Sermon on the Mount language, who are these people? They're the poor in spirit. They're the meek. They're those who have mercy, et cetera, et cetera. Those who will shine in the kingdom of their father, the good seed, are those who clothe themselves in Jesus' righteousness. I think that's one thing that came up in, in Sunday school. We rely on Jesus' righteousness. That, it is in that way that we will escape judgment and shine in his kingdom. So, Jesus, through these parables, and this parable particularly, is assuring his disciples and every believer that a day is drawing near that when the kingdom of their father will come in full force and they, the lowly sinners who have come to Jesus looking for help, it is they who will shine in his righteousness like a city on a hill. And is that not great news? Let that evoke fresh courage, revived faith for you, Christian, this morning. And so now we've reached the end of our, our text and I've just got a few concluding comments to make. I want to pose the question that Jesus posed at the end of this section. That is, do you have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to you this morning? It's very possible you hear him. Do you want to understand him? And then consider which audience are you? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not yet following Jesus. It may be that you want to. It may be that you were dragged here this morning. You don't want to follow Jesus. But either way, believe me when I tell you, Jesus wants you to hear him this morning. That's why you're here. 
He spoke these parables to a crowd filled with people just like you on the fence about Jesus or against Jesus. And and he told them these parables so that they might know and recognize him as their king and come to him. Do you have ears to hear that? You need to know that it is not too late to have your heart changed. Ask, seek, knock, and consider it God's mercy that you are here this morning sitting and hearing these parables and hearing this invitation. So run to him and be gathered into his kingdom through the forgiveness of your sins. Okay? On the other hand, if you are among the disciples who follow Jesus into the house, let me speak to you. Let me ask you, church, do you have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to you this morning? If so, let me invite you to consider a few ways to respond to him. First, consider Jesus' heart for the crowds and imitate it. See, Jesus spoke in parables to the crowds in order to break through their resistance. He was compassionate to those who were not yet following him. Are you? Am I? Or do we tend to look kind of down our noses at people? Do we, do we really, like Jesus, want everyone, even our enemies, to reach repentance? That's what Jesus wants. I hope that's us. I hope that's true of us. And if, if you struggle with that, ask the Lord to grow such compassion in your heart. The, the Lord's compassion is on display in these, in these verses. Secondly, um, pray against evil and, and do not take revenge yourself. Um, know that the Lord will administer justice in the end perfectly according to his goodness. We can just, we can trust God and pray for our enemies, love our enemies. God will take care of justice. Thirdly, this one is a little wordy, sorry, uh, if you're a note taker. Um, Dare to more fully embrace that God has a good plan, that he is working out for your good even when your life is really challenging, even when there's evil all around. You see the weeds, you're, you're aware of their presence. Dare to embrace that God's plan is good. Th- that's Romans 8.28. We know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God may seem slow to act in this season for you. I understand that. But are you willing to hear that that slowness that you feel may actually be what God is using to, to, to cause you to realize how desperately you need him. You can't, you can't fix your problems on your own, and you go to God. That slowness might be what he's using to call you to himself. It, it could be that he's using the disappointments, the trials, and perhaps even the sin struggles you've been wrestling with to remind you that you'll never stop needing his grace. So here, with those ears of yours, it, it is a good thing to remember we can and we must Rest in the grace of God that is ours through Jesus Christ. Fourthly, um, during the season of waiting, keep growing. Put on the Beatitudes by his help. Evil may be everywhere, but God is still on the move. He is still working. He is still waiting. His judgment is delayed. And in the meantime, let us not waste the days, but let us strive to be more and more like Christ. Let us imitate Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God. And lastly, come to the Father in Jesus' righteousness today and every day. 
this, this is not the righteousness of our own performance. That's how many of us like to, um, I mean, that's how many of us operate, right? We, we have good days when our devotions are going really well and, 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 we have, and we feel good. That's our righteousness, right? And then we have bad days and we feel guilty. We're still, rela- we're still, we're still relying on our righteousness, okay? But we need to come to Jesus in his righteousness, alone. And that, that's a gift. That's by grace. And there's this book I give to seniors uh, when they graduate, and I, I wish I had a copy of it. It's called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, and it's really, really helpful. One of his phrases that he uses <clears throat> is that your, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. They're ne- you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, but you're, on your best days, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of it which I think is a really helpful little turn of phrase. And, and that's, that's what I'm inviting you to walk into. You need God's grace. You need Jesus' righteousness. That's how we relate to God. And so discipline yourself to rely on his performance for you, not your performance for him. So finally, I, I invite you to rest in the truth of our text this morning. Know that our God is never late. His timing is perfect. And his patience is truly and deeply good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know if we're in the crowd, we're on the fence. You know if we're following you and we're discouraged. And you, you know what we need to hear. So for those of us on the fence, Lord, would you, would you, would you move on us in, in, in such a way that we would come to you this morning? It's not too late. And for those of us who are discouraged by uh, the disappointments in life or the evil around us, God, would you renew our trust in you? You are never late. You know what you're doing. You've got wisdom. Help us to lean into that and trust that. Um, We praise you for your goodness and your patience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.